0: Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be reading today from the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 1, and we'll be reading the first 11 verses. And as you get there, if you could stand once more for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You may have a seat and please bow your heads with me as we pray to our Lord. Father, we come before you now as a people who acknowledge and we recognize that you are not an absent God. You are present in our world, in our church, and in our lives, and you're accomplishing and moving your sovereign will forward in ways that we may not understand. And Father, it is with heavy hearts that we come before you, and perhaps more than ever, we recognize that our world needs a Savior. As we have witnessed even more of the extent of the darkness of our world, we see those who have brought violence in our nation's capital. We see the darkness in them. We see the darkness in the way that people have reacted to this and responded to this. And we've also seen the darkness in the hearts of the men and women who are on each side of the political landscape. And Father, I pray and I ask that this truth would not be lost on us, that some of the darkness that we witness on the news should remind us of the darkness in our own hearts. And while we don't doubt that the evil one is active in what we're seeing around us, and while we don't doubt that the world itself is under his influence, I pray that we don't overlook our own hearts, what we need to repent and turn from. We cannot change men's hearts, but we can, by the power and the humility that you have supplied. Repent of our own sins. Lord, I ask that we as a nation and as a people would recognize that addressing our problems with anger and with protests, with social media posts, or with legislation even, is only trying to solve spiritual problems with the tools of the flesh. In dealing with these symptoms, all while diverting our attention from our real problem of sin and our sinful hearts and the solution of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we lament the state of the nation and the state of the world, but we also have hope because Christ is King and your kingdom isn't on Capitol Hill or in the White House. And we have hope because we know from your word that we can be made new And we know how sin can be put to death and how darkness can be transformed by the light of your word. We know, Lord, that through Christ we can be like lights shining in the midst of what is clearly a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, humble us. Help us to recognize our own weakness that we might find strength in you. And protect us, Lord, as we consider those in our midst who are struggling right now those who are struggling physically from sickness or death in the family, uh, for for those who are struggling with um, just tiredness and lack of sleep and having welcomed new children into the world and dealing with some of the difficulties in that and being apart from the body. We pray for those who are struggling financially from the loss of a job and the difficulty of finding another one. But most of all, Lord, we pray for those who are struggling spiritually As for many of us, we've been apart from your people, apart from your body, and vulnerable to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And we've been away from the people whom you've called us to strive alongside. Lord, even in the midst of the hardships that we endure, we still have ample reason to be thankful. And I ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things that you have provided us. And yes, this includes all the material things that we have, And yes, it includes the relationships and the people that you have provided in our lives as well, but you have provided us also the greatest gift of yourself in Christ and his word. And we thank you, Lord, that no matter how dark things may seem to get, we have a hope eternal that can't be taken away, that's hidden and preserved in heaven for us. And one day, this world, its desires, that right now they seem so big and so imposing and insurmountable they will pass away and those who do your will will abide forever. So we thank you for this joy for the new life that is no longer bound by sin and for the promises to look forward to in Christ's name. I pray. Amen. Thank you, Kevin,
1: for, uh shepherding my heart and our hearts at the end of a, a really a, a difficult and rough week for our nation. Um, it's good to be back in the pulpit. Um, it's been an interesting week. Lots of heated discussions in the Chin household. Um, lots of time too in prayer and uh, be forewarned, I guess. The Lord has put much on my heart. So um, if you're Sitting inside, buckle up. If you're outside, bundle up. Uh, For those who are sitting outside, if it does get a little bit cold, or I guess it's already a little bit cold, I believe there's a little bit of a room in the outer foyer where there's a screen, so if you get cold, or you have kids who are getting cold, you can come in and warm up and social distance in that area. Um, I want to, even as... uh, Eric and Kevin have done. I I want to turn our hearts this morning to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our light. He is our Savior. He is our hope. And He is our goodness. And He's the reason, brothers and sisters, even when the country is melting down, that we have reason to have joy and rejoice and be hopeful. uh, Because He is our King and He is our Lord. And uh, in John 18... Our Lord and Savior stands before Pontius Pilate. He's standing in the capital of Palestine or Judea. He's standing in the Praetorium, which is essentially the Roman capital of Judea. He stands before Pilate facing accusations of insurrection and conspiracy. Does that sound familiar? Well, these things are nothing new to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's uh, being placed in this position where the suggestion is that he, by virtue of proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews, is actually responsible for insurrection and conspiracy against Rome and against Caesar. This is the accusation that's being brought against him. But he's come, not breaking through barriers, he has come bound and in submission. He has come after having prayed, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And by telling those close to him to put their swords away. And as he stands before Pilate's inquisition in verse 36 of John 18, as you can see up here, Jesus says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. And as disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's worth meditating on how beautiful and how different the words and ways of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ are from the words and ways of what we have seen on display, not just... This past week in our nation's capital, but this past year and these past years. And I highlight this contrast, brothers and sisters, because if we're honest with ourselves, there have been an abundance of spats that have happened, yes, even in the conservative evangelical Christian communities on our Facebook or Instagram accounts, our social medias. And uh, one article written by an unbeliever recently this week made the point, and uh, I just wish they could see the connection to what our Lord and Savior Jesus says, where the point was made, we can no longer divide the line between our social media and the violence in our nation. And that observation was made because... Many of those who were actively and visibly involved in violence this week, when their social media sites were examined, there was a lengthy and vociferous expression of violence and hate on their social media sites. And of course, what does Jesus say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay? And these divisions that we make are artificial divisions. And I highlight this contrast because many who visibly participated in the political movement and the events that led up to what we witnessed this past week in our nation's capital are professing Christians, those who would say they are conservative evangelicals, including leaders within the conservative evangelical community. And though they have condemned what we saw this past week, in the weeks prior, many have embraced the very words and the very movement that led up to what we saw. And it says, brothers and sisters, a lot about. American Christianity. This brand of Christianity that is celebrated in this nation. And the way in which it stands in stark contrast to the ways and words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the good news of God's word is that as disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our hope has never been in a political or religious leader or movement. And that is a truth, brothers and sisters, that many American evangelical leaders forget frequently. Our hope is in the God of the Bible, even as Kevin prayed this morning. Our hope is in the God of the Bible who draws near to save sinners like you and I from our sin. Our hope is in the only one who can save America. Because America is filled with sinners, brothers and sisters, just like me. Our hope, brothers and sisters, our hope is real. Because our hope is very clearly in a God who draws near to us and saves us, not with politics or protest, but with His good news. And that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And that, brothers and sisters, is the testimony that begins not at the end of the Bible, but right at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 3. Which, as it turns out, has much to say about what we have witnessed this past week. You'll recall Genesis 3 provides us with what was written by Moses, but what are the God-breathed words that account for the advent of sin into the good creation of God's Word, what is often referred to as the fall of man, or the place where our original sin or our total depravity begins. And the events of this past week have provided ample evidence that we are not evolving as a species, we are not getting better, or progressing, or becoming better human beings. And no amount of wealth or education or legislation can hide our total depravity and our enslavement to sin. But brothers and sisters, I'm excited about sharing with you the words of Genesis 3 this morning. Because as we come to Genesis 3, we see that the story does not end with our sin story ends with the words of a loving and good creator and shepherd who draws near to sinners in order to save us. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version and we'll begin in verse 1. And we'll read to verse 11, even though it says 13 on the screen. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This is the word of the Lord. One evening, a long, long time ago, I received a call from the lead physician of my medical team. And picking up the phone, he told me that he was handing over the medical practice to me immediately that evening because he had just received a phone call that his son had been in a car accident. His son was in college in Colorado and had been driving on a snowy night on a snowy road with a number of his fellow collegians. And there was a car accident and his son ended up having to be taken by ambulance, I believe, to a local hospital. And uh, the lead on our medical team had received that call just a few minutes. And he told me, he said, Mark, I said, when did this happen? He said, just a, a few minutes ago. Um, so he said, "I, as soon as I get off this phone call, I'm going to pack my bags. So I'm going to jump in my car and I'm heading straight to Colorado. And of course, he did what all good fathers strive to do. He went to be in that hospital as fast as he could. He spent evenings sleeping in a hospital cot next to his son. He sorted out the bills. He paid for what needed to be paid for. He also had to ask some awkward questions as well. But he did whatever was necessary in order to bring his son home and get his son to a safe place. As we come to Genesis 3... We see, in fact, this is what the Lord God is doing, but in a far more perfect and far more beautiful way. The Lord God here is stepping in to deliver His children from something far deadlier than a motor vehicle accident. The first man and woman, as we've read in these first few verses, have willfully turned their back on their Heavenly Father. And they've willfully turned their back on His Word. And they've done so in their quest for personal freedom and independence. Personal freedom and independence. Do those words sound familiar to you? They've done so that they can do what they think is right in their own eyes. They've done so, so that they can get ahead. They have transgressed God's command. And they are discovering, as they live the lie, that they are unable to deal with the consequences of their sin. As we very much find out the same thing, and as many this week have found out. But the good news of Genesis 3 is that like the good father and shepherd that he is, the Lord God does not abandon his lost sheep. So often we fail to see that in these words. Instead, what the Lord God does is in love, He draws near to those who so desperately need Him. Those in particular who are running and hiding from Him. And that brings us to our first point for this morning. In love, the Lord God draws near to His lost sheep. In love, the Lord God draws near to His lost sheep. Verse 8 of Genesis 3 reads, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And with these words, these God-breathed words, Moses reminds us how the Lord God had created us, men and women, human beings, the very first but all of us, to be in fellowship with the Lord. We were created to be near our Creator. We were created to be standing in the light Of his life and his love. We were created for intimate fellowship with the Lord. And with one another. And you can't separate one brothers and sisters from the other. That's Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is this beautiful illustration. It's not a myth. It's a picture. So I'm not saying it's fiction. About how the Lord comes in. And the intimacy he has with the first man. And the words he speaks. And the fellowship Adam has with a God who knows his very heart and knows his needs. That it's not good for him to be alone. That there's not a companion suitable for him. And it culminates and ends with this amazing fellowship between a man and his wife where they are naked and not ashamed. And we fail and we forget. And for all of you, we've got an abundance of folks who are going to go through premarital this year. Well, we're going to hammer this one home. We fail to see, brothers and sisters, our fellowship with our wives and with one another. And with our church members and with our elders. It begins with our fellowship with the Lord. We were created for fellowship with Him first. And out of the overflow of that fellowship comes a fellowship that is safe and good with one another. Well, Moses, in verse 8, he reminds us of that. He reminds us, really, of of what they've lost. Though God is a spirit, He created the garden to be a living sanctuary and a place of fellowship where His... Creatures and his creation and the first man and woman can not only gather with one another and have a beautiful place to live and be fed but also where they can meet with the God who created them. And though God is a spirit he provided a way in which he could draw near and where his loving presence both physically and spiritually could be felt By them. And this is what's being referred to as their hearing the sound of the Lord in the cool of the day. Though God is a spirit, frequently throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, He finds a way to accommodate His presence in a way in which His creatures can appreciate His love, His nearness, His proximity. Typically, at, at night, the lights will be out. And we'll read stories to our boys and we'll sing to our boys. And we do it because we want them before they go to sleep to remember that we're there with them and they're not alone for the rest of the evening. And before they go to bed and when the lights are out, typically we'll kiss them on the forehead and say goodnight to them and tell them that we love them. And of course my my boys will remind me later on that they know I'm there because I have bad breath that smells of chocolate and coffee. The things that I eat when I sermon prep all day. So they know where I've been. But throughout Scripture, God walking, walking with God, that term about the Lord walking, walking with God or the Lord walking, is used repeatedly, especially throughout the Old Testament. And it typically refers to the presence of the Lord. It refers to God's gift of His personal fellowship with those He loves. Where the omniscient and omnipresent Lord of all comes down to be near to His children in a tangible way. Leviticus 26.12 He says, And I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. And you'll recall later in the book of Daniel where Daniel's friends will not worship an idol, and so they are tossed into a fiery furnace. And as the king looks into the fiery furnace, he does not see Daniel's three friends, he sees four people. One like the Son of God or Son of Man walking with them. As we come to verse 8, this is... What is happening as the first man and woman hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? That term, sound of the Lord God, in other parts of Scripture, frequently refers to the voice of God. Perhaps even His singing. And the cool of the day, many believe, is an ancient Near East term referring to late afternoon or early evening when the cool breeze comes in. And it suggests, and from the language and the way the Hebrew is written here, it's written that idea of walking. It's a habitual pattern. It's not a one and done. And it suggests the idea that the Lord made it a practice every day on a regular basis to walk through the garden, perhaps in the evening, at the end of the day, to spend time with the first man and woman. Like a good father who sings his children to sleep at night. And the sweetness here as we come to verse 8 is, remember, this is after they've sinned. And the beauty here, brothers and sisters, is that their sin does not stop the God who created them from loving them and pursuing them and drawing near them. And just like the Gospels, the Lord is a good shepherd who has come to seek and save the lost. The problem, however, which is always the problem with sin, is that sinners do not want to be found. And that brings us to our second point for this morning. In sin, sinners run, hide, and conceal from God. In sin, sinners run, hide, and conceal from God. It's always a challenge frequently in church ministry that those who you are most heartbroken over and who you want to minister to the most end up running the fastest from you and it's not uncommon that elders and pastors will gather together and we have too the elders how do we deal with this and we've mentioned it to dr street i've mentioned it to dr street dr street what do we do with the runners you know how do you shepherd But as we come to God's word, what the Lord shows us is this is the condition, brothers and sisters, of the human heart. Running, concealing and hiding is evidence of our total depravity and there is no temptation or testing but such as is common to man. It means this is all of us, brothers and sisters, the propensity of our heart of our sinfulness and our depravity the evidence that we are Adam's children and Eve's children is when our sin is confronted and a good God draws near, our natural and first instinct is to hide and conceal and to run. In John 3:19 through 20, Jesus says, "And this is the judgment: the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." Now, we think those are just the bad people, the thugs, you know, the drug addicts. But Jesus here, well, this has happened after he's been speaking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. This is everybody, brothers and sisters. The testimony of God's word for all of sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is our nature, this is our heart, this is our instinct. And if we function any differently, it's only because Christ has come in and redeemed us. Well, for the first man and woman, what was previously a holy joy and delight, something to look forward to at the end of the day, to meet together and to walk with the Lord who had created them and had brought them together. What was previously their joy and delight, the presence of God is now because of sin and because of their guilty consciences, a horror to hide from. Sin has reversed everything. Verse 8 says. And the man and his wife hid themselves. It's interesting. It says the man and his wife. Moses is bringing our attention. Okay. The two are one. Moses and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden. And here we see. The nature and effect and evidence of sin. Not just. In Adam and Eve's lives, brothers and sisters, but in our lives too. As sinners, this is our natural inclination and desire to cover and conceal our sin using the very gifts God has given us. Using the very gifts God has given us to try to hide in plain sight from the presence of the only one who can save us from our sin. Sin is irrational, brothers and sisters, because it corrupts the goodness of God. And this is the folly of sin for Adam and Eve. Where are they going to try and hide? How are they going to outrun the Lord? And they are hiding in plain sight. This is the garden that He has created. And yet, the depravity of sin is such as they are using the very gifts that God has provided them for fellowship. The house of the Lord, the garden, the sanctuary, the temple place, this very place. They're using that, including the trees that are there to provide them with shelter and food. while they're using it to hide and conceal their sin. Such as the folly. And such is the depravity and twisted nature of our sin, brothers and sisters. And so the man and his wife use the trees that God has graciously given them to hide from the God who they need to save them. Now, brothers and sisters, we're no different. And though we might not use trees and fig leaves, We use our education, we use our careers, we use our politics, we use our religion. We use our social media and we use American flags to do the exact same thing. To hide our depravity in plain sight under the guise of pursuing justice and freedom and saving America and pointing our fingers at everybody left, right and center. But as Jesus explains in John 3, this is just evidence of our sinfulness, of our total depravity, and our desperate, desperate need of a Savior because, quite frankly, we can't save ourselves. It shows, brothers and sisters, the level of our blindness. Our blindness at what is obvious to all. And, and you spend enough time in church ministry, and the elders know this, and pastors know this, but you just spend enough time, and, and those of you who have walked through church discipline. All you need to do is to let people talk. And as they talk and as they share and as they try and cover and conceal, all they do is demonstrate more and more that there is something that they are hiding. That they're running from something. Remember speaking to Pastor John last year as we looked for shepherding through some of our church discipline cases. And I remember Pastor John telling me on the phone, he said, Mark, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. It's pretty clear. The evidence, brothers and sisters, of our sinfulness is the way we try to distance and destroy whatever might expose that there is something wrong in our lives. The way we try and distance, and if we can't distance, then destroy, whatever makes us feel uncomfortable about ourselves, or whatever shows us up, or whatever shows us to be inadequate, or that we might not be perfect. And the problem is, brothers and sisters, none of us are perfect. There was a certain church I went to, I won't name its name. But in their Sunday school, they used to load the tables beforehand with Krispy Kreme donuts. That was a highlight of my week. Just to go up there, Krispy Kreme all laid out, no worries about diet or all of those other things. But I noticed when I would go for donuts that nobody would stand around me. And it was a little bit odd. And then finally, as I came up to one young lady who was standing in front of me from a college, which I won't name, And she looked and she froze and then she waited for me to go ahead and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then she said, well, you're a physician. I don't want you to see me eating donuts. I thought, how crazy is that? I'm here to eat donuts too. And that's like our sin, brothers and sisters. You know, we don't want other people to see our sin. We don't realize they're all sinners too. When we made this transition from becoming a church member to becoming a pastor, suddenly nobody wanted to talk to us anymore. And you'd be in small groups and nobody would say anything. And two weeks before, while we were still members, everybody would share everything under the sun and suddenly it would get silent. The elders have shared with me similar stories as they made the transition to become elders. Suddenly, you know, and and I just want to say to you, well, hey, we're sinners too. And I also want to say to you, all those things, all those tricks that you use to hide and conceal, all the little pat answers, oh, you know, God's working in my life, I'm struggling. I've used them all too. So we're not fooling anybody, brothers and sisters. We're all on the same line. And we all need the same Savior. And yet that is the folly of sin. And it's evidence, brothers and sisters, of our total depravity. And it's not just true, brothers and sisters, of the last week or the last four years in America. Jesus explains to us, this is the testimony of human history and this is the testimony of the cross. That's what they did to Jesus. Jesus made the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite, aware that they were not right before the Lord. That they too needed a Savior and they too needed to be forgiven. And they crucified him for that. Sinners run, sinners hide, and sinners conceal. And when they can't get away, they do everything they can to destroy any evidence of the word of the Lord. Proverbs 18:1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. You run, you get alone, you want to cover up. You don't want to be around people. I need to take a break. Brothers and sisters, Proverbs says in general, that's because you're seeking your own desire. That can be in a marriage, or a family, or a school, or a Bible study. Proverbs 28.1 The wicked flee when no one pursues. The wicked flee when no one pursues. And then John 3:20, "For everyone who does wicked things hates the light." Now brothers and sisters, it's easy to point at others. But it's worth noting that all those scriptures I just read were written to the people of God who worship in the temple of the Lord, or the house of the Lord. It's worth notice, noting that when Jesus says those words about darkness and loving darkness rather than the light because their works are evil and everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light John 3:19 and 20 that comes after what John 3:16 and that all comes after his conversation with who a tax collector a prostitute a thug a gang member no He's just had a conversation with Nicodemus, the teacher and leader of Israel, the Bible expert, par excellence, who has come at night under the cover of darkness because he does not want to be seen or exposed in the light of day. These scriptures, brothers and sisters, are being addressed to people who are in the house of the Lord. Adam and Eve, brothers and sisters, they are hiding in plain sight. They are hiding in the garden. And throughout the gospel, the people Jesus calls out the most are those Brothers and sisters, who use religion and politics to hide the depravity of their hearts. And those are not the tax collectors and those are not the prostitutes. They are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, throughout the history of the church, are those who have been the loudest screamers, the loudest shouters, the loudest protesters. And those who, if there was a social media site in Judea at that time, would have been out there pointing their fingers at everybody else. And yet, all that time, hiding in plain sight, they were covering what was rotten and what was dying on the inside. And throughout the history of the church, brothers and sisters, the church has been filled with those who use seminaries, who use scripture, who use service in the church, which are all good gifts from God. As cover for our sinfulness, so often people will come to me and say, "You went to the master seminary. How could it be this horrible person? This horrible, this, that, and the other thing went to the master seminary, and this is what they did." And then we come back, brothers and sisters, to God's word, and this is why Jesus warns us in Matthew seven fifteen about wolves and sheep's clothing, and by their Master has technical difficulties. Okay, are we back? Yes. But Jesus warns us. And he says to us, by their fruits you will know them. And then he also warns his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees. Why does he do that? He says a small amount is going to affect a lot. Because, brothers and sisters... Even if we are disciples, even if we are redeemed, it's our propensity, it's our heart. We are very easily led in that direction. Our feelings, our emotion, our reasoning is going to take us down in that direction. That is, brothers and sisters, our flesh. And it's very easy for us to follow and think we're safe because we're serving in the church. We're safe because we went to the master's seminary. We're safe because I homeschool my children with religious doctrine. And yet, brothers and sisters, none of those things can save us. Only our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can save us. Because those things will not save us from our sins. So I'm not disparaging those things. Those are all good things. You want to raise your children and give them a good Christian education? Do it. You want to go to seminary? Yes, you heard from Peter last week. You have an obligation as a good servant of Jesus Christ to be trained in the sound words of our Lord you need to be equipped, you need to be trained, and you need to be challenged, and you need to be moving forward. And for some of you men, you need to consider whether the Lord indeed is calling you for seminary training. But brothers, those are the gifts and they are not the giver. When we make that mistake, brothers and sisters, we become Pharisees where we use those things to hide in plain sight our depravity. That somehow, because we know so much about the Bible or we know Scripture and we see it so many times in small groups brothers and sisters we're sitting there and there's a brother or there's a sister or there's typically I see the brothers where there's been sin or there's something ugly or something's not right and that's the evening they come and they spout out bible verses like there's nobody's business so what's up with this i wish it was the holy spirit but it's a cover job We do this, brothers and sisters, with all the pat answers. Let's not give them, I'm struggling, doing okay, the Lord's been good to me. All the things that we use as a password, basically to say, stop asking questions, I'm doing okay, don't go any further. It's a cover job. We pretend that we're doing okay when we are not, and when in fact what we're showing and demonstrating is we are enslaved to our sin. Job 31.33, Job makes the point that concealing our transgression and hiding iniquities in our heart is who and what we are without the Lord. But brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word is that we cannot hide and we cannot run from the good Lord and the good shepherd who in love draws near to us. We can't outrun the Lord. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. In love, the Lord God draws near to restore sinners with His Word. In love, the Lord God draws near to restore sinners with His Word. And this is what we see in verse 9, as the Lord God begins to do this with the simplest of questions. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, and He said to him, Where are you? Throughout Scripture, the Lord's salvation always begins with a call, brothers and sisters. It begins with a call to not perfect people. It begins with a call to sinners. That's His grace. Brothers and sisters, if He's calling to you, it's not because you're perfect. We're sinners. And that's good news that He is calling to us. He always begins with a call. And it's a call, brothers and sisters, that in love always exposes our sinfulness. And it exposes our sinfulness in order to restore His Lordship and His light and His love in our life. It's a sweet thing, brothers and sisters. Now that's only the Lord. This world does not do it that way. And there are many who have grown up in families or places or workplaces where all people were doing by drawing near or exposing was to punish you. But not so the Lord. And that's what Moses is showing the children of Israel in Genesis 3. Not so the Lord. He draws near to restore us. But to restore us, He needs to expose our sinfulness. And with these words and with this call and question, where are you? The Lord God is reminding the first man and woman, who is really in charge here? Because that's exactly the thing that their sinfulness has tried to deny. It's not by accident that the Lord God's word is addressed first to who here? not addressed to the serpent, it's not addressed first to the woman, it's addressed to the man. In verses 4 through 7, and we've dealt with this in weeks past, all the initiating, all the leading, all the questioning is being done by who? The serpent and the woman. And if you look at the order of events in verses 4 through 7, it's the reverse of what's happened in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God initiates and creates. In Genesis 2, God speaks to the man first. In Genesis 2, God creates the woman out of the man, and then He brings the woman to the man, and the man speaks to the woman before the Lord. And then the two are one. In Genesis 2, the man stands over all the animals and the beasts of the field. They come to Him, He names them. Genesis 3, 4 through 7, all of that's reversed. The serpent has been able to name the man a sinner. Under the disguise of calling him a God. This, brothers and sisters, is always the way and the pattern and the effect and the evidence of sin in our lives, in our families, in our worship, in our world. Sin is all about reversing the divine order of God's Word in our lives. It's all about reversing God's good order in our lives and doing so with a lie. A lie that says we are free and we are justified to do whatever we think is right. A lie that says we are God. And brothers and sisters, this is the lie that we saw going on in the Capitol this past week. A complete disregard of God's clear commands of Romans 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Complete disregard. Why? Save America. We're fighting for what's right. We're fighting a fraud. We're fighting a lie. You know, the list goes on and on. This is exactly the same story being played out over and over and over again. And the sad truth is, those who profess to be Christians jump on that bandwagon just as much as anybody else. But the good news of God's Word here is, though sin changes us, it cannot change God, and it cannot change His Word, and it cannot change His promises. And in the garden, the Lord begins to restore the lives of that first man and woman. Not with politics, not with violence, not with religious education. He does so by drawing near with his word. And he does so by speaking to them. And he does so by speaking to the man first. And as he speaks to the man first, the man he has chosen, the man he has set apart to be his servant leader over all creation. As he says to him with the question, where are you? What the Lord God does is he steps in to his rightful place as the judge over all. And he holds the first man accountable as the first in responsibility and accountability to the word of God. No, we're not going to make this about the woman. No, we're not going to make this about your marriage. No, we're not going to make this about your spouse. No, we're not going to make this about who deceived you. You are the one I set apart to lead. You are the one who is responsible for all of this. And in doing that, brothers and sisters, the Lord graciously restores the first man to a place he does not deserve. But it is the place of God's Word. God restores the order with His Word. And then after speaking to the first man, He speaks to the woman, and finally He addresses the serpent. And as it was in the beginning, so it will be in the end. And brothers and sisters, this is what is so wonderful about the word of the Lord and what it does in our lives. In love, it comes in and it puts things back where they are supposed to be. So that we can be close to the Lord and have fellowship with the one who loves us and created us to be with him. That's his purpose. And that's what his word is doing. But it's also, brothers and sisters, why His Word is so uncomfortable in our lives. It's because we're sinners. And what His Word does is it turns everything in our fallen world right side up. And for sinners who have become used to their sin, for sinners who are used to concealing and hiding, for sinners who are used to running away, for sinners who are used to carrying on and pretending as if God does not see and God does not know. When the word of the Lord comes in and starts putting right things right side up. It feels all wrong. It feels like we're upside down. We say to ourselves this cannot be. Until we open our Bibles. And there it is, black and white. I Think of our dear saints who struggle out of faithfulness or love for the Lord. Their hearts break. Singles who are not married because they will not date an unbeliever. Parents who are unable to have children but are faithful to the Lord in service. Those who have been obedient to the Lord. And it seems like they come with the short stick rather than the large stick. Missionaries and pastors who have given their lives to the Lord only to be sidelined and disrespected in their places of ministry. It happens all the time, brothers and sisters. And they're heartbroken. And you hear their stories and they share. Devastated. Hurt. How could the Lord allow this to happen? I've given everything for the Lord. Until we open our scriptures and see this is the story of his son. His son gave his life. He suffered so that we might have life. His son had the short end of the stick so we could get the big end of the stick. Brothers and you open it up and you see, no, no, this is not backwards and upside down. This is not wrong. This is not a declaration that God can't be there and there's not a good God because we're suffering or we're having a hard time. This is right side up and it feels so uncomfortable. And I want to warn you about that, brothers and sisters, because so often when the Lord comes in and He begins delivering people and He begins shepherding people and He draws near with His love and the light of His Word comes in and He starts putting things right side up. And people finally get to the point where their sins are being disclosed and the Lord is starting to carry that burden. Their feelings and their thoughts and their minds resist it and push against it and they feel incredibly uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. And they say, something must be wrong. And if it goes and people resist, many times they will blame the messenger, the pastor, or the elder, or the discipleship group leader who's just coming along and trying to share the word. Well, they must be wrong because they're making me feel uncomfortable. But brothers and sisters, Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful who can know it. Desperately wicked. Wicked. And he points out to us, brothers and sisters, that our heart and our emotions and our thoughts are corrupted by the sin of Adam and Eve, by our total depravity. And our hearts and our feelings tell us that things are right side up when they're upside down. We cannot trust our feelings, we cannot trust our thoughts, we cannot trust our minds. That's why... It says in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with not some of your heart, all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, because it's flawed and corrupted. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He, not you, He, will make your paths straight. It's showing that we're bent. and What God is doing is a kindness and a grace. You've heard this illustration before. During my years at trying to throw my hand at at surfing, the man who mentored me always told me, he said, some guys go out and they surf without a leash, Mark. That's not for you, okay? And the point was, when I was getting started, you need that leash because when you get tossed in a wave and you get spun upside down, Your brain tells you to swim in a particular direction, but because it's all mixed up, you end up swimming down rather than up, and you can drown. He said, no, you just hang out, you just wait, you get tumbled, and you wait till you feel the tug of that leash, and you know that that's your surfboard pulling up, and then you swim up. Okay, and brothers and sisters, when life comes and it beats you up, and things are hard, work, friends, family... And things are confusing. And your head is in a spin. That's exactly the time when the flesh is strong. And you can't trust your feelings. And you can't trust your heart. And that's when as David. We need to wait on the Lord. And the Word is that leash that we so desperately need to feel and wait on the Lord until the tug of that leash, until we know, okay, this is the direction that we need to go up. And when we hurry and we don't wait for the Lord and we start going in the direction that we think is best in haste, we end up going in exactly the wrong direction. I had friends whose parents got saved. When we were growing up and they told me. They said, what a drag when our parents got saved. When when our parents weren't saved, they weren't around. We could do whatever we wanted. You know, video games all day, this, that. I'm not saying video games are bad. I'm just saying these guys had the run of the roost. They could do whatever they want. Movies, whatever they want. Suddenly their parents got saved. And suddenly the kids who probably, as he shared with me, wasn't saved at the time. It was like the worst thing that ever happened in their home and their household. And yet later the Lord graciously saved this young man. And looking back, he realized what a fruit and what a blessing. The light of God's love coming into that house and making things uncomfortable and turning right things right side up. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord restores sinners, He always begins by drawing near to us with His Word. And He always begins by exposing the only thing that really matters in our lives, which is how far away we have been from Him. And that's what the Lord does so graciously with Adam. When he asks that question, where are you? He's asking the only question that matters. He's exposing how lost Adam really is. But it's the only question that matters. Where are you in relationship to me? Are you where you should be? Are you close to me? And brothers and sisters, that's still the same question that Jesus asks of each one of us. Where are you? As we move forward to the gospel and we come to Jesus' ministry, we see that this is exactly what Jesus does. Why? Because He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. And He begins by drawing near sinners with saying what? You're doing a great job. Ministry, good. No problem. I don't have to worry about you. Serving, good. Don't have to worry about you. Taking lunches to old ladies, good. No. no, He comes in and He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what we read in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, he sends a a messenger, John the Baptist, in advance, in case you didn't get the message the first time. He's going to bring it twice. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That term, repent, is you're not where you should be. You're far from God, but the remedy has come close. The Lord has drawn near. What you need to fix this has come. And that's why the tax collectors and the prostitutes jump up and down, and they come to him. You don't need to hide or conceal or run from the Lord. And then as he preaches his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, what does he say? Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are those who run the church. Blessed are those who retire with a great retirement and a great career and a great college degree? No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You look at those, brothers and sisters. They're the opposite of everything that we have seen on Capitol Hill this week, but it's the opposite of what we've seen in many of the movements leading up to it, including the conservative evangelicals. Why? Because Jesus is turning things right side up with his word. And he's demonstrating that the first will be last. And the last will be first. And he's demonstrating that God's kingdom runs by a different economy. It runs by God's truth and grace. And what is valuable and esteemed by the Lord is hated by the world. And what is esteemed by men is an abomination to God. He's turning things right side up, brothers and sisters. And as you walk through the rest of the Gospels, you see this is the beautiful thing that the Lord does in the disciples' lives. And He does it over a period of three years leading up to the cross. And then after, His Word turns their lives right side up. And then, brothers and sisters, He dies on the cross. And He pays for their sin. And He does what they do not want Him to do. Why? Why? Because his blood washes them of their sin and sets them free from the bondage of this world. And the sweetness and beauty, as you see later, as he comes back for Peter to restore him after he has betrayed his Savior three times. Peter does not need to run, he does not need to conceal. When his Lord comes, he dives in the water and he swims straight for him. He says, It is the Lord. And when Jesus asks him if he loves him, eventually Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. I don't have to hide from you. I don't have to conceal from you. I don't have to cover up with a job or a career or verses or to say, Jesus, I did this and this and this for you while you were gone. I don't have to do anything. You know my heart. And brothers and sisters, that is the beauty of what Jesus does when he comes in and he sets us free. We don't need to hide anymore. And that's why Paul is able to say, I'm the chief among sinners. There's no hiding it. I'm only here because of the mercy and grace of the Lord. Not because I'm great, smart, beautiful, all of those other things. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I will boast in one thing and one thing alone. It's not an American flag. It's in the cross. Because it's the cross, brothers and sisters, that has set him free. And so that's why when we come to 1 Timothy, what we've been studying, what the elders have been leading you through, that's why Paul is jumping up and down. Because Christ has come in and He's turned their lives right side up and He's starting to turn their community right side up. He's restoring what they lost in the garden. He's bringing back into the church Genesis 1 and 2. And they're walking away from it. Because they're becoming enamored with the world. And they're deviating from the gospel. And they're becoming preoccupied with genealogies and mythologies. And we can add conspiracy theories or whatever else you want to get onto. Politics, movement, whatever you want to go down. And they're forgetting Christ and the gospel, the one who saved them. And so Paul comes back and says, no. Christ has brought you back and turned things right side up. Christ is to be king. The gospel is to be central. And in verse 2, rather than protest and jumping up and down, you are to pray. You are to pray for the salvation of your leaders. You might not agree with your leaders. You might not agree with the politics of the president-elect. And we don't have to. And we don't have to obey when he commands us to do something that is contrary to God's word. But we are to pray for him. And we are to pray for His repentance because the only thing that will save America is what will save America from its sins. And the ones who are to lead in that prayer, brothers and sisters, are not men running around with guns and flags. Or talking at length on social media about conspiracy theories. They are to be men who lead in prayer, lifting up holy hands. Hands that have been washed by the blood of Christ. And therefore, hope in Christ's blood to come and save the worst of sinners. And those who are to lead in the church are to be men, not women. Why? Because Paul takes us back to Genesis 2. Because the man sinned and the woman was deceived. And women, you are not to cover up your lives and use apparel or wealthy jewelry or clothes to be some sort of cover or concealing because you're saved and you're redeemed and you have nothing to hide. You are beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. You have a spirit that the Lord has given you. Let that be seen. Rather than falling for the trap of the world. That all of these whistles and bells. Are somehow going to make you higher esteemed. Or better viewed. And the leaders of the church. It is not about. Your talents or your skills. Or your intelligence. It is the character of Christ. In you. Christ the Apostle Paul is pointing out, has given all of this to you and he's made it right side up. Why are you turning it upside down? So brothers and sisters, let me close with this. Where are you? Where are you in relationship to the Lord? There's a proverb I frequently give to the young men of the church. Proverbs 28 13 through 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Brothers and sisters, we need to be praying for our nation. We are no better than what we have seen. But let me just exhort you as we look into this new year. Make Jesus a priority because He has made you a priority. Draw near to Him through His Word because He has drawn near to you with His Word. And allow Him to set your hearts free. Let the focus of our hearts, our minds, and our words be Jesus, brothers and sisters, and not politics and movements and the whole three-ring circus. And let us pray for one another, and let us pray for the leaders of our country. And let us walk in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, whose kingdom was not of this world. There's a famous missionary named C.T. Studd. Incredibly wealthy man. Incredibly wealthy family. Also a distinguished athlete. Known throughout England and known throughout the world. And he walked away from it all and he gave the entirety of his fortune away. And became a missionary first in China and then in Africa. Pivot point for him, well he was saved under the preaching and teaching of Moody. But he talked about worldliness enticing his heart away until his brother was on his deathbed. And he went to see his brother who was incredibly sick and they thought would die. He would eventually survive. But he said, as I sat at the seat of my brother, I thought to myself, what is fame? What is fortune? And what is a man's soul worth? Especially as we stood near to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, maybe the Lord has to do that in our life. Where he brings us to that point where we're so close to seeing the Lord and so close to death. And this is happening in our nation that we begin to consider what matters most and we consider where are we and we consider what all of these things are worth and we begin to see that these things are worth nothing in comparison brothers and sisters to the nearness and the presence of the god who loves us and draws near to sinners let's close in prayer lord jesus what a savior we have Though we have been unfaithful, you are faithful still. We love you for that. This year, O Lord, though the world may fall apart, unite our hearts to fear your name and enable us, Lord Jesus, by faith, to walk with you in your presence. In your name we pray, amen.